And Fred leaned into the desk toward me and said, Matt, it's really nice that you care about these issues. If you don't stop, it'll destroy your career. So at that point, right, you have some decisions to make. One is maybe I'm crazy and I should just simply toe the line and do exactly what everyone else does. Or maybe the rest of the world is wrong and I'm right. <laughs> And these issues really do matter. And they're going to end up being realized as important in the future. Welcome to Good Business Talking. And I'm your host, Ravi Rai. Today, I'll be speaking to Matt Patsky, the CEO of Trillium Asset Management, a company with 4 billion assets under their management and have been nominated eight years in a row as a company that's best for the world overall by B Corp. In this episode, I spoke to Matt about the role of asset management in changing behavior of companies for social impact and the issuing of social dividends. We also spoke about how the current non-financial disclosure can create industries of vanity metrics and companies need to go further to make a real change. I love talking to Matt. The guy shows so much humility, yet he's done some incredible things in the world. Just one being instigating GMO labeling across the whole of the United States. And so without further ado, let's get started. Matt, uh, welcome and uh, thank you so much for joining me here on Good Business Talking. Well, thank you, Ravi. I'm pleased to be here. Okay, so Matt, let's uh, start by maybe you giving the listeners a 60-second intro to uh, Trillium Asset Management, the business, what it does, the size, employees, just a bit of background. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Trillium was founded in 1982 uh, with the purpose being to provide for the investment needs of our clients while leveraging their capital for positive social and environmental impact and alignment with their values. Uh, we are now just about $4 billion in assets under advisement um, with just about 40 employees um, with our main office in Boston and uh, offices also in San Francisco and Portland, Oregon. Hmm. Okay. Now, Matt, businesses can show up being a force for good in, in many different ways, right? And what I've read about Trillion um, man, you guys are invested in a bunch of different things. And, uh, you know, whether it's about being the first investment firm to file a shareholder proposal on the issues of genetically modified foods, helping persuade McDonald's to adopt the first ever policy regarding humane treatment for animals, whether it's about saving one of the world's largest sustainable salmon fisheries in Alaska. I mean, you guys are all in by the sounds of it. Where did this intention come from? So I would say it started from our initial client base. When Joan Bavaria decided to launch Trillium in 1982, the initial client base were almost entirely religious institutions. They were predominantly Catholic nuns. Okay. As someone who was raised Catholic, I know a lot of nuns. And I will just tell you, nuns tend to be very fiercely progressive and very aggressive in wanting to protect people's rights and the um, incredible 
commitment to social justice. I think a lot of the early framing of the issue areas mattered much to the nuns, including um, ending apartheid in South Africa Mm. and uh, addressing environmental challenges, gender equality, and racial equality. Wow, I never thought you would have said that's where it kind of was born, with a bunch of clients that were nuns. That's phenomenal. (laughs) I found a group called Social Venture Network where I was able to meet some incredible early leaders in the movement toward conscious capitalism, uh, just a whole series of visionaries, uh, Joan Bavaria, who had founded Trillium Asset Management. Peter Roy was one of those early people that I met uh, through Social Venture Network. He'd go on to be the uh, co-CEO at Whole Foods Market. And I also you know, met Ben and Jerry of Ben and Jerry's, um, you know, Anita Roddick and Gordon Roddick, who had founded the Body Shop International. I was very fortunate to have met a group of business leaders who were operating under this belief system that it mattered the impacts they were having on the world. <clears throat> Let's go to 1994. You know, this is almost, yeah, almost 25 years ago when you wrote your paper, your own paper on socially responsible investing. You must have faced some skeptics or critics um, back then. Um, If you did, who were they and how did you overcome their skepticism? So I'll share with you when I decided this was what I wanted to focus on, which was the late 80s. I was a a sell side analyst at Lehman Brothers in New York City. And, um, And I started by writing it out as a business plan. And I went into... Uh, Fred Frankel, who was the Associate Director of Research at Lehman. And I explained to him the correlation I was seeing between company management teams that were addressing what impacts they were having, both environmentally and socially, and that those that were making an effort to try to have positive social and environmental impact seemed to be better quality management teams and seemed to be performing better. And then I felt there was correlation and that we needed to investigate whether this could be done across all industry groups, because clearly it was working within consumer, which I was following. Hmm. And Fred leaned into the desk toward me and said, Matt, it's really nice that you care about these issues. If you don't stop, it'll destroy your career. So at that point, right, you have some decisions to make. One is, Maybe I'm crazy and I should just simply toe the line and do exactly what everyone else does. Or maybe the rest of the world is wrong and I'm right. Hmm. And these issues really do matter. And they're going to end up being realized as important in the future. I wrote basically a thesis piece that was probably only four pages long Hmm. about why this mattered and how it could be implemented across all industries. It did take me a while to get it actually uh, published because Mm -hmm. I needed to be at a new firm and I needed to be at a firm that was willing to publish. I will tell you when I published it, the reaction was unfortunately very negative from most, including the firm that had allowed me to publish it, which was Robertson Stevens. Sandy Robertson, co-founder and the chair and CEO of the firm, Mm -hmm. called me into his office to tell me he wanted me to stop talking about socially responsible investing. He felt that it was damaging to the brand of Robertson Stevens. I had trouble understanding that. 
it obviously was clear I had to move on. And I had to make another move to a smaller uh, boutique in Boston, Adams, Harkness and Hill, that really embraced the work I was doing on socially responsible investing. I will tell you that in between 1988 and, and 1990, I presented that to almost every investment bank in the United States. I actually wow. was in and talked to the uh, director of research at Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, um, Bear Stearns. I ended up going and talking to regional investment banks. What, what gave you that fire in your belly that made you get up every day and go knock on those doors and kind of talk about socially responsible investment? I, I think I am a big believer that in order to be able to get up and, and, and go to work every day, you better be doing something you're passionate about. And um, I certainly saw plenty of evidence very early in my career that those who are there just to pursue money are miserable <laughs> and are miserable day in and day out. The way Lehman was organized, you had almost complete freedom to build something in terms of a franchise without much reaction from your bosses unless you were completely unsuccessful. But I was having success. I was having success in buy-side counterparts, you know, the, the portfolio managers from the asset managers liking the work I was doing, uh, voting for me in the way they, they, they vote for, for commission revenues. And so I was generating commission revenues and we were seeing success in generating banking revenues. So the success couldn't be challenged. So one of the things I read is that Trillion belief impact is active. Right? And on your site, it says activating stakeholders' assets to create concrete, positive social and environmental change on a global scale. I mean, that's, that's audacious. That's huge. Firstly, can you simplify that statement for us? Yeah. And tell us, what does that mean on a day-to-day -day basis? Right. So... One of the observations that we we have people make all the time is they'll say, well, you know, in, in the secondary markets where you're playing and buying stocks and selling stocks, you're not really influencing companies. You're not providing additional capital to companies. Most people are putting their money into a fund or into an index product. Mm -hmm. They don't know where it's invested. They're not attempting to have any influence. Um, they don't behave as an active owner. When you have ownership in a company, we'll use um, Shell Oil as an example. If you're a shareholder in a mutual fund that owns shares, right, you are an owner, but you have no real way of reflecting your belief system to that company through the mutual fund unless the mutual fund is actually doing something to try to leverage its ownership position. And um, and, and for most of the funds out there, particularly index product, you know, it's not part of their business model and not part of their ethos. They're not thinking about trying to have impact when you put your money into a, <clears throat> a Vanguard index product. So when we talk about active management or active ownership, we're, we're talking about the not just sort of selecting companies in an active bet of we think these companies will have more positive impact. We're also talking about being an activist owner 
mm-hmm. and and actually talking to and engaging that company management team on ways we think they can improve, right? And so we are buying generally much better than average companies. And then we are literally going in and saying, you know, here's some areas we think you could still improve. Because just as there are no perfect people, there are no perfect companies. And so after we've picked a company, you know, we pick Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market is much better than most retailers of food in the United States. They have much better practices, much better employment practices, much better sourcing practices. But then there we are saying to them, well, we think you should require every provider of product in the Whole Foods system, you know, anybody who's going to get into your retail distribution, if they have GMO ingredients, it should be required they label it. The response from senior management was, why us? Why are you always picking on us? And I'm like, no, we're not picking on you. We're telling you that we think you have an opportunity to maintain your leadership, demonstrate further to move further. And by the way, you're going to be helping to move the entire industry. You know, you require GMO labeling. You know, you're a large enough retailer in the U.S. that people are going to comply. That GMO labeling is going to show up elsewhere. Because people aren't going to design two packages. If they're going to put a label on GMO free, it's going to be on every package. It's going to show up in Safeway and Target, right? Every other food retailer is going to start to see this show up as as a change in labeling. Well, to us, that's a much more powerful effort than what was happening at the time, which is because we couldn't get GMO labeling requirements from the federal government in the U.S., we were trying to do it at a state level figuring if we could get the GMO labeling in California, then we, you know, people would label. And, and you may know that effort failed and it failed with a significant effort by Monsanto to kill it. So, you know, this was a kind of backdoor way of getting to that very end and it worked. Whole Foods did adopt GMO labeling. It did end up becoming very, very common for everybody to label whether they were using GMO ingredients. And that's what, you know, we talk about when we talk about trying to be an active owner, it's not just active management, which is true. We're an active manager, but, but being an active owner of trying to change behavior of companies. Got it. There are quite a number of different audacious, well-balanced, holistic measures around ESG. Is that not enough? If companies have their dashboard of good ESG metrics, is that not enough to say we are doing good or we are getting better in balancing all these different needs across our stakeholders and the way we show up as a corporation? In the 25 plus years, dramatic improvement, right, in disclosure. What we still do not have and where we haven't gotten to is standardization of what are we measuring, what are companies actually putting out in terms of disclosure. And so I'm gonna go to, I'll go to diversity and inclusion, just as an example. We know that the United Kingdom actually did us all a great favor in requiring disclosure around gender pay equality in a way which was, had never yet, had never before been, been, been published. And so we were able to just simply say, 
how well of a of job has HSBC done in the UK on gender pay equality? And the answer is they're terrible. Gender pay equality is a problem and it's a problem globally. So what we want is to get to consistency of data and, 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 uh, and a timeline. Now what I have is I have, at least from, you know, in the standpoint of the UK data, I have a, a specific criteria of the way they reported and everybody was required to report the same way. What I want is for that to be global, and I want to be able to look then at timeline, and I want to be able to say, are they making progress and improving, or is the problem getting worse? And I want to be able to do that based on gender and along racial characteristics so that I can say, pick a name, it's like, you know, it looks like HSBC is making good progress, but the Royal Bank of Scotland is, 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 you know, perhaps moving the wrong way and you get to be able to compare and contrast, right? And what we're really looking for is imagine if the SEC in the United States under a Biden administration were to say, we can see clearly that environmental, social and governance factors are material and we are going to push forward with more disclosure requirements. And in the case of diversity and inclusion, the good news is that the companies are already required to do a very thorough and detailed report to the Department of Labor on an annual basis. And so most of the data we would want to see disclosed already exists. It's just that 95% of companies operating in the US have decided not to release, not to disclose that detail. What we're looking for is force it to be disclosed, mm. make it a requirement. It is material. We know if, if, if we've learned anything in 2020, we, <laughs> we've learned that it's really important that we understand how you're addressing diversity and inclusion. And if I had that data and I had it over a timeline, I would be able to assess how the management team is addressing this pressing social issue of diversity and inclusion. Got it. Got it. And there's some of these metrics are vanity metrics. Yeah. Um, but doesn't really show actively what the company's working on. So what does Trillium do that's different, that progresses a company from being let's call it unconsciously incompetent, then you get metrics, you're consciously incompetent. So, so where's Trillium's USB in kind of progressing these companies? Yeah, one of the problems with the lack of clarity of what data is being collected and how it's being presented is it's up to interpretation. And so a company can be disclosing a lot of information now and we could end up with the ISS folks determining that it's, you know, in the middle of the pack in terms of environmental impact relative to its industry. Then MSCI determines that it's in the bottom of the pack and Sustainalytics decides it's in the top of the pack. You know, we're trying to look at that and say, well, the problem is the data is all over the place because too much of it is up to interpretation. And so no matter how much we're getting better disclosure from companies, it isn't consistent. And so we have to work on that. One of the things we do is we're buying data, but we're not actually buying anyone's ratings. We want to understand it. 
every investment professional leans very heavily on forecasted financials, right? What is the outlook for this company and its financials? We need to get to a place where we're also able to say, what is the company's forward looking environmental, social and governance profile? Because there's actions being taken to change that. Now, the momentum could be in a positive way or it could be in a negative way, but understanding that directionally where they're going is really important. And it takes a lot more effort to really understand that because you've got to be in dialogue with the company and you've got to be, uh, have some history with the company to know whether or not you can trust what they're telling you. Right. And, um, and so it's complicated right now and to make it less complicated, it's going to take a lot of standardization and, you know, will we get to the day where somebody can do a successful quant index product that is really incorporating ESG? Yes. We're just not there now. Okay. Now that's clear. So, and now I understand what you talk about when it comes to vanity metrics. Now I'm curious, you also state that you have a commitment to community and, and that's deployed through a mechanism called social dividends. What's a social dividend? How does it work? Uh, yep. How does that bring value to a community? I'm, I'm, I'm super curious on that. No, really good question. And so I have to tell you, the social dividends actually as a concept came out of a conversation we were having with a distribution partner, Morgan Stanley. For, for most investors, the focus is solely on financial returns and to try to open up to say, well, if, if I could tell you, you could actually get the same financial returns, uh, perhaps even better. And there was social dividends. Mm. That is an attractive plus that you're able to sort of maintain or, or achieve the financial objectives you have or, or your financial needs in your retirement plan, but also have positive impact on the community that in which you live and work. Mm. That's the objective. And so it is about, you know, how do we look at and how do we talk about the positive impacts we're having on society, community, and, um, and, and incorporate that into the way in which we report. And so it's part of, we try to do it as part of our impact reporting. Got it. And hey, by the way, I, uh, I understand also that you guys have been nominated for, uh, for Best for the World Overall company by B Corp, what, seven years in a row now? I believe it's now eight years because I think we just got named again for 2020, which is you know an incredible honor. Just to get B Corp certification is tough. And then to be in the top decile of that group of companies, I mean, you're very clearly an outlier. Uh, proudly so, yeah. We're um, looking at how we can improve. So we implemented just a simple health benefit. In the United States, obviously, we still have a terrible healthcare system that is uh, dependent upon employers. And for most employers, they've been squeezing healthcare costs by passing on more and more of the burden to their employees. Mm. And, and so that we had done it, you know, basically in a way in which we were uh, making sure that the company was bearing that burden. Our goal is to make sure that no employee ever is afraid about not being able to afford to go and get and seek 
proper health care. We want them to feel that they and their family should always seek um, you know, the best care. And, and it's interesting, you, what you've just said there reminds me of something I uh, spoke with Mike McFall of Big B Coffee. He was talking about the very purposeful intention he has about reducing fear and anxiety at the workplace, because that is one of the leading causes of chronic disease. Now I'm hearing what you've done. If me or my family ever got hurt, I'd have to worry. I'm going to get covered. So straight away, that's a huge potential source of fear or anxiety just just gone away. And I can flourish at work and life. Right. That's exactly right. It's simply, it shouldn't be a worry for any employee right. or any of their family members. Right. Got it. So Matt, if I was a CEO or a business owner and I wanted to use my business as a force for good, but I don't know how, what advice would you give me that would help me pivot? So I think it's a mindset shift for, for most of simply saying that providing a positive product or service for people that has a positive outcome for the world is doable in a profitable way. That is not to mean that every business idea is a good one. It's really important that you understand you have to sell products or services for more than it costs to provide. And that fundamental truth, it will always be there. And so if you've got a model and it's doing incredibly great impact, but you're actually have a negative, you know, gross margin of 30%, you will not make it. There's no reason why a good business idea can't also mesh with positive social and environmental impact, right? And certainly we have plenty of examples of that. And, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll use Starbucks, um, you know, as, a, as an example where, um, you know, they started off from the thesis of if we're going to provide our customers a good experience, we need to have employees who are well-trained and therefore we need to have low turnover. And in order to have low turnover, I need to offer a benefits package that's going to attract people and make them want to stay at the organization. And so you go back 30 plus years ago and Howard Schultz started the chain where he offered full healthcare benefits to every employee, regardless of whether they were part-time. Mm. Well, that's it. Now I'm in college and I'm working part-time at Starbucks, but I don't want to leave Starbucks because that's, they're providing me healthcare. Right. And they were also, you know, they also provided stock incentives early on. So they had a connection to the organization and an understanding of how they treated their people were absolutely interlinked with the customer experience that was going to make the customer want to come back. Understanding that interconnection and sort of realizing I am going to be better off in the long run if the community sees me as a part of the community, not just simply operating within the community, right? And ultimately, you know, the most valuable asset we all work with is our people. Mm. We need to have people who are committed to the mission of the organization and are going, that's going to provide the client experience that's going to allow for people to stay. We, as you know, just went through a merger with a large Australian parent. And 
in that merger process, we were required to get positive consent from our existing clients. And, the, um, and we ended up at just over 99.4% positive consent. Um, and it's not that the 0.6 necessarily left us, it's just that we didn't get necessarily everything signed, but 99.4 plus percent. The CEO of Perpetual, who's done many acquisitions in this space, said, I've never seen numbers like this. You know, usually getting over 80 is like considered really good. And I just said, well, it's the clients and the experience they're having with us. It's the reason why, you know, we, we measure our, our, and track our net promoter score and our net promoter score is one of the highest of any brand in the financial services industry. Um, and that's because the client experience is good because the employees are incredibly committed, right? And they're incredibly committed because of all the positives of what we're trying to do in terms of social environmental outcomes. Being in a way where you can actually have gross margin mm-hmm. and you're providing, you know, um, positive social environmental impact that's that can be described and and relayed to not just the employees but to the, those customers um, you know and suppliers the whole you know that whole community that's a successful model what a great way to end it now uh, where can I direct my listeners to learn a little bit more about you so uh, www.trilliuminvest.com is the best place to go. It's our website. And what I would say is look at our white papers. The best place to start for people is a piece that we did back in 2012 with the Tides Foundation. And that's called Total Portfolio Activation. Now, certainly people can reach out to me and my Twitter is Matt Patsky. My Facebook is Matt Patsky. I'm also on LinkedIn. My email address is mpatsky at trilliuminvest.com. Superb. Before we head out, I ask all my guests uh, to finish off three sentences for me. Okay. So in the context of capitalism, Mm -hmm. first sentence, finish off the dots. I like dot, dot, dot. So what do you like about capitalism? I like that capitalism does push for um, a allocation of resources in alignment with what is most productive and most needed. So there's a efficiency of allocation of capital through the system. Got it. Second sentence. Again, in the context of capitalism, I wish. I wish that capitalism better reflected external uh, impacts and costs, particularly around environmental and social impact. Beautiful. Okay, last one, but not by any means least. In the context of capitalism, I wonder. Well, I wonder how long it'll take us to actually recognize the significance of the need for a role of policy to actually 
um, require that we think about those externalities and the way in which we price and the way in which we operate. Beautiful. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Well, that conversation opened my eyes up to asset management. A couple of things that really stood out for me. One of the things that Matt did was to seek people out and groups that operated under the same belief system. And that was, it matters the impact companies have on the world. And he went out and connected with the likes of Whole Foods Market, Ben and & Jerry's, and The Body Shop. The other thing that also stood out for me is that he's a real believer in working on what you're passionate about. And in his words, and he's seen a lot of people with a lot of money, those that primarily focus on making money are just miserable. So I think that challenges us all to think about what's our calling. And if we haven't figured that out yet, are we spending time figuring it out? That's all for me today. I'll be talking to more CEOs and business owners in the coming months. If you think this was good and interesting use of your time, please do share. The best form of marketing is recommendations. So even if you share with one other person, that helps me fulfill my purpose by getting the message out there that businesses are, can be a force for good. And for that, I will forever be grateful. Thanks for listening. And until next time. This was hosted by Ravi Rai. You can connect with Ravi on LinkedIn or on Twitter at RaviFPC. This series is sponsored by Four Points Consulting. We make change happen with conscience and with purpose. Check us out at www.fourpoints.net. That's www.fourpoints.net.